0: We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. As you know, almost 60 of us returned yesterday from a week and a half tour to Israel, and that was an overwhelming experience. It was my fourth time to go. I can't wait to go back again, and uh, was impressed by so many things to see, but impacted by so many things in my heart. It would take hours to be able to to describe that. And I would encourage you, if you know someone who's gone, to sit down with them and just let them vent on uh, the things that the Lord kind of opened their eyes to and the perspective that they have now. Full confession, I knew I wouldn't have time to devote to the next section of Ephesians when I was over there studying. So I kind of went on the trip saying, I want to preach on something from the trip something that I saw that had a special impact on me, but I didn't expect of exactly what it would be. It was the Garden of Gethsemane, which I've been to several times before. But being there and thinking about the Lord's sacrifice and what happened in the, that small little grove of olive trees had such a sinking feeling in my stomach and soaring feeling in my soul that I began doing some study uh, during the night to prepare for this, and um, this was a sermon that was done mostly on, on uh, the, the plane on the way back, and uh, having jet lag. If I don't make sense, I'm going to ask Aaron just to start, just come up and grab me and say, come back next week, since apparently I'm now on the rotation with the rest of the, 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 just the preachers. So, But I was so blessed by seeing Gethsemane again and remembering freshly what happened right in that real estate that we sat in. Let me read this passage to you so you have some context. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to begin reading in verse 30. This is right after the Last Supper and Matthew says, after after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not even keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again. And went and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. For behold, the one who betrays me is at hand." It should surprise no one that there are a busload of people in our church this morning who have very full hearts from our trip over to Israel. And it would be impossible to unload all that we saw, the things that we experienced. But if you want to hear about that trip, there are 50 plus jet lagged folks who would love to sit down and chat with you. It's hard to identify a favorite site. We said it so many times over there at dinners and at breakfast, especially as the trip kind of moved on and get, got close to the end. What is your favorite site? And you've probably asked them or heard people talk about that when you get back. What was the favorite thing you saw in the Holy Land? I've been over four times, and I must confess, each time something different really grabbed me in different ways. This time it was very fresh in my understanding of the Lord's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, I didn't expect that, I didn't plan that, but being there for some reason had a unique impression on my own adoration and worship, my new, my new found deeper love for the Savior. And for our time together this morning in God's Word, I want to take us all back to that Thursday night with Jesus and His men in the Gethsemane Olive Grove, just down at the foot of the Mount of Olives and also at the foot at the temple mount these were divine purposes that come to fruition in these hours there in the garden the events that surround the cross was all divinely purposed some mistake this whole incident as Jesus being killed by an enraged mob and he was but this was not outside of the purpose plan of God the narrative of the garden in gethsemane uniquely reveals that Jesus had a special passion and understanding about what we call the passion or his suffering. He understood it very well. And I think it's interesting to know this. Most of what we find out about in this passage happens while Jesus was by himself. How do we know about it then? Liberal scholars say, see, there's a question about whether this even happened because no one was there to record Jesus' words. Well, my understanding of this is that in the 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus had plenty of time to tell the disciples many things. And I think one of them was, man, you remember the garden? I need to tell you what happened out of your sight and beyond your hearing. At some point between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus has many lessons for these men, many different points. But what I want to ask this morning is a little different than I have been asked already this morning since returning from Israel last night, and you will probably ask and hear us. We say, what meant so much? What meant something to you when you were there? Good question. For me, it was the garden. For some, it was the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and for some, it was out, up on our bell. And there's a lot of different meanings that really attach themselves to our hearts, And that's a good question to ask, and I think it's an important and an appropriate question to ask. But I want to ask another question this morning. As we look together with Jesus in the garden, I don't want to ask what that meant to us. But I want to look at this garden narrative and ask and answer, what did it mean to Him? What did the garden experience mean as Jesus' humanity was on full display But so was his deity. Sometimes we like to bifurcate and chop up Jesus and say, well, he was acting in his humanity there and in his deity there. He was always acting in both. But sometimes we get a glimpse of his humanity a little more clearly and a glimpse of his deity a little more clearly. This is a glimpse of his humanity, but he was no less God during these events. We see an incredible display of his humanity here. We get to see a side of Jesus that's nowhere else expressed in all the New Testament. This is unique. The disciples have never seen Jesus like this before. It's been a busy week for the Lord. On Friday, they arrive in Bethany. They kind of set up base camp, probably at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' place. Saturday is the Sabbath with all of the attendant rest and in feasts and enjoyment that they would have had. Sunday is a triumphal entry. We were able to walk down the path that Jesus walked, actually rode on that donkey to enter the temple. On Monday, things turn and he cleanses the temple and now the hostility begins. Tuesday, he debates all day with the council. In the evening, he has a private meeting with the disciples. Wednesday is interesting because we know nothing about what happened on Wednesday. It was silent. And my own speculation about that is that's the Lord's circling his men up and even circling his heart up to prepare for what was happening in the next few hours. Thursday was preparation for the Passover and then Passover celebration that evening. Friday morning or Thursday night, we don't know exactly the time, he's arrested. Goes through six trials, three Jewish and three Roman. Then he's crucified. He's on the cross by 9 a.m. on Friday. Saturday, he's in the grave. He's dead. And then Sunday, he rises. But this experience of the Lord in the garden, tucked in the middle of this whole narrative, and Thursday night late or Friday morning very early in the wee hours, is where I think we can find the answer we're looking for of what did this whole suffering mean to him. Some have called this encounter in the garden the holy of holies of our Lord's life. G. keble Morgan writes, no man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is the subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation. John MacArthur writes, as we look into our Lord's last night before death, we can grasp what it We can grasp what we can of the sacredness of this powerful moment in his life and ministry, but we realize that no amount of study or insight can give any more than a glimpse of the divine human agony he experienced there, end quote. As I said, this was new for the disciples. They have seen much about Jesus in many different contexts. They have never seen him like this overwhelmed with tsunami-like waves of grief. According to John chapter 18, verse 2, the garden was a place the disciples met often, which would have made it an easy target for Judas to bring the the arresters to. This is where Jesus took his men to pray. And having been there, we were able to go over to a little side part of the garden that was private and spend a few moments there uh, last week. You can see where that would have been just such a sweet place without the sound of cars, just among the olive trees. By the way, some of those trees there are over 2,000 years old. They would have been there in the garden when Jesus was there. He told his disciples two days earlier, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man at the Passover is going to be delivered up for crucifixion. 26 verse 2. And just a few months earlier than this passage He told them they would all fall away. And Peter protested. They had to know this was a crisis point in the life of our Lord. They had been with him all week where he was hailed as the king at the first of the week. And it progressively gets worse as he says what the kingdom residents are really to be like. Some of the crowd, I would say probably most of the crowd loved him and followed him which is why Jesus says when they come to arrest them, why did you come with it at night? Why didn't you come during the day? When I was at the temple, you could have easily tackled me and taken care of me then, but I think they were afraid of the crowds. And here in Matthew 26, two gardens meet. The Garden of Eden in Genesis 3:15, where we're told that Jesus would be bruised, the Messiah would be bruised on the heel by a stroke from a serpent, but the, stroke, the serpent will be crushed by the heel of the Savior. And that meets in the Garden of Gethsemane. Two gardens come together. This text has been the object of much derision. As I said, m- many liberals say we don't, they can't be true, because, or at least trustworthy, because the only person who knew these things was Jesus. I think he could have taken care of telling the disciples later. And again, the most common question I've asked, or been asked, asked and been asked, is what was so meaningful to you about the sights that we, we saw, the experience. And that's a great question to ask, but here in the next few minutes, I wanna ask about this one encounter, this one incident, this one amazing sight that we sat at, some of us wept at in the Garden of Gethsemane and answer the question, what did it mean to him? So let's just answer it with three very brief answers. What did Jesus' sufferings mean? mean to him. After this garden, we don't get a good glimpse. We just see from the outside. This we see from the Lord's own perspective that he shared with the disciples. What happened? The first thing it meant to him is this, human abandonment. Human abandonment. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that the Messiah in the time of suffering, when when he's experienced the sufferings at the hand of Almighty God He will be forsaken by men. This is when that happens. I don't think it's so much the crowds. I don't even think it's the Jewish leaders. I think it's that he was forsaken by those who knew him best and loved him most. He was forsaken. Go back to the context. Verse 30, after singing him after the Last Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Probably just a few hundred yards, they were in what we think is the upper room, and they traversed through the city, came down the, the slope of the Temple Mount and crossed the Kidron Creek or the Kidron Valley into this grove of, of olives, which was just all over that mount. That's why it's called the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this very night, for it's written, I will strike down the shepherd, sheep of the flock will be scattered, but I've been, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The garden, as I said, follows the Last Supper. And they were not prepared for being told that they were all going to scatter. That's a, an exact quotation of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee, God says. But notice in that. Even there, there's the promise of the resurrection. He's been telling them. Over and over, three times we have in scripture, one time on the way to the Temple Mount, he's going to die and suffer at the hands of the the Jewish leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees. I'm going to die. But verse 32 after I have been raised, where? From the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Verse 33, but. But Peter, those two words, but Peter, you could, you could do a whole sermon series on those two words. Because But Peter follows a lot of things. But Peter said to him, Though all may fall away, because of you, I, I, I'm different. I will never fail. <laughs> you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says in Caesarea Philippi. You are the Son of God, meaning your deity. And here's Peter correcting God. Oh, no, no, no. I know you said we'll all fall away, but you must be those guys because it's not me. He protests. He's not intimidated by the living word of God or the written word of God, Zechariah or Jesus. He just insists that he's the exception. Extreme arrogance. And also extreme love. Can you see that too? RVG Tasker says, Peter insists that he will be an exception to the universal defection of the apostles predicted by Jesus. Never will he be found devoid of faith and courage. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, (laughs) this very night, just in a few hours, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter Doubles down. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All, And this is important. All the disciples said the same thing too. He's not going to be the only hero. We want to jump in on that too. In the midst of this emotional and spiritual turmoil that Jesus is experiencing, he wants the company of men to be with him. All the disciples, Jesus said, come with me to a place. Come with me, be with me. He and his disciples entered probably out the eastern gate, walked down the road, crossed the Kidron Brook, off a path leading to the Mount of Olives in a grove called Gethsemane. The word means oil press. There are probably some presses there from that mountain that was covered with olives that they bring down there and process the olive oil. It was a favorite spot of Jesus, as I said, from John 18. Jesus does something interesting. At the beginning of the grove, he leaves eight of the disciples. There are only 11. Judas has departed. We'll see him in a minute. He leaves eight at the entrance, and then he goes deeper in with three of them, Peter, James, and John, verse 37. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. We know that's Peter and James and John. These three men, wow, these three men, they saw so much. They were the three that he took up on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was transformed in front of them. They were the three that were taken in the inner court of Jairus' daughter when he raised the little girl from the dead. These were special men. This was his inner circle, his best friends, as it were. And they are called here to share not only in the prophecy about his death, but preparation for his death, and they would fail miserably at that. William Hendrickson says that Jesus would take some of his disciples into the grove is not strange. Being human himself, he stood in need of food, drink, clothing, shelter, and sleep, but also in need of human fellowship. He needed these men. and I love this. But even more, they needed him. But at this moment... He's all alone. Leaves the eight, leaves the three. He goes back and is by himself. Human abandonment. Forsaken of men. This is the prophecy. Second, what did it mean to him? Divine judgment. The garden meant divine judgment. In the middle of verse 37, and he began to be grieved and distressed. We don't have the ability to really comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony as sinless incarnate God. I believe he was able to perceive the horror of sin in ways that you and I never could because of his holiness. He also had the ability to feel the human side of anticipating the suffering in a way that no human could. He knew exactly what was about to happen. And We have two words here. He was grieved and he was distressed. Mark actually adds a third word. Ademoneo terribly distressed, crushed with anguish. Sometimes this is used of slaves who are taken away, who feel homesick. Greek scholar C.B. Cranfield says, an anxiety from which there was no escaping and in which he saw no help and no comfort. Grieved and distressed. Perlipos, deeply grieved, overwhelmed with sorrow. Mark adds a third word that means being in the grip of a shuddering horror in the face of the dreadful prospect before him. Several years ago, I read an intriguing book about the, the 12-day hunt for Lincoln's assassin. And at the end of this uh, uh, narrative, you know that they catch... His assassin. They also catch the accomplices. They hang them all together. And the author talks about there were men and women as a part of this, um, these accomplices. The author describes those who are around them looking into the faces before they put the hoods on these men and women who are about to, to die. And he describes the utter horror on their face because of what was ahead before them. That's this. Time's divine infinity. Jesus knows his death is imminent. Again, by nine o'clock in the morning, he's going to be on the cross. But I don't think he's so much contemplating the fierceness of the physical suffering. Rather, as we'll see these three prayers, the abandonment of the Father, the divine judgment that lays on him. One Puritan preacher wrote this. Jesus came to be with his father in the garden for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened up before him. And he staggered. Why all the sorrow? Why all the pain? Was it because he knew Judas was approaching? Was it because he was painfully aware that Peter was about to betray him along with the other men? Was it because the Sanhedrin were about to condemn him? Was it because Pilate would sentence him? Was it because his enemies would ridicule him, soldiers mock him, Romans scourge him? Was it because his disciples would forsake him and people turn on him? His mother was about to watch him die in front of her very eyes? was it because he would be beaten with fists, beaten with rods, have flesh ripped from his back, sharp-tipped whips, beaten with a crown of beaten with a a whip that would have exposed internal organs? Was it because he would have a crown of 3-inch thorns pounded into his head? Was it because his hands and his feet would be nailed to a cross and suffer the agonizing, torturous, humiliating Suffering of hanging on that cross. He was human, so yes, part of that, but more. It was because he was about to be forsaken by God (laughs) because he would be judged for our sin. How sorrowful was he? Look at verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. How much to the point of death? I think, had an angel not come and supported him, as Luke tells us during this encounter, he would have probably died from grief. But the Lord came and held him up by sending an angel. Verse 39 he went a little beyond them and fell on his face. Fell on his face. Just a footnote have you ever had a situation in your life? I have a few times where grief was so strong and pain was so intense that the only thing you could do was lay on your face in a pillow on a bed. Jesus falls with dirt lapping up in his mouth on the ground, falls on his face and prays. What does he say? My father, if it's possible, Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What's he praying? What is this meaning about a cup? Well, remember the scene. Eight are at the gate, three are closer by, and he's a rock's throw from there. He's by himself, and he's distressed. Why? Why? Because of a cup. Cup? What what, what is that? Jeremiah 25 says that God's wrath is stored up in a cup. And here Jesus looks at the wrath of God and says, I I know that's what I need to drink. I, the sinless, spotless Savior, need to drink the wrath of God for sin that I never committed as a substitute for those who I love and who love me. Reason for his distress is that he's getting now in this moment and in this first prayer he is getting his first taste of bearing the sin on the cross. In just a few hours he'll say, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" That's past tense, forsaken. It began here. This is where the forsaking begins. When he quotes Psalm 22, a little footnote he says, "My father in Mark 14:36." He calls him Abba, Dad, Daddy, term of intimacy. The issue here, by the way, is not whether or not Jesus would accept the Father's purpose, but whether that purpose needed to include the horrifying drinking of the cup of vicarious substitution where he would be judged for sin. If there's any alternative way to pay for the sin of those I love for my people, without enduring your wrath, Father, let it cup, let the cup pass, let it pass. Isaac could say to his father, Father, where's the sacrifice? in Genesis 22. Jesus couldn't say that because he knew he was the sacrifice. Drinking this cup, Howard. Excuse me, William Hendrickson says, Jesus now prays that the cup be spared from him, that it pass him by. The completely sinless, in fact, exemplary nature of the prayer appears from the fact that the main clause, if it is possible, which in turn is elucidated by the words, nevertheless, not as I will, but you. Jesus is submitting himself entirely to the will of God the Father, end quote. Helps us understand and answer the question: who killed Jesus? There's a lot of correct answers to that, actually. The Romans nailed him to the cross, they they were responsible. The Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the council of the elders, they they condemned them, they're possible. The people yelled, crucify him, They're, they're responsible. You and me bearing sin that he paid for, we're responsible. But ultimately, Jesus didn't ask us about getting out of this another way, another possibility, a way around it. He didn't ask the Romans. He didn't ask the Sanhedrin. He asked the Father. Why? Because Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Father to crush the Son. That's why. As much as he shrank back in his human nature from this cup, he did not shrink back from any thought of disobeying the will of God. The most just person in the universe was about to be subjected to the ultimate injustice of mankind. He would be vilified, defrauded in the petty courts of sinful, bitter, spiteful, jealous, lying men, all in the name of God. He would be so identified with sin that the hosts of heaven would restrain themselves from coming to his rescue. Hebrews 2.9 says he came to taste death and rejection from God for everyone. And at this point, by the way, Luke adds that an angel comes at this point as an answer to his prayer, I think, to support him. This is specifically spoken of in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. I mean, think about this. It's just mind-numbing. He had provided justice, but was given injustice. He had been so kind, but was treated with unrelenting meanness. He was so gentle, but he was now given torture. He had demonstrated humility, but was mocked by proud men. He'd given healing, but was now given pain. He'd offered heaven, but was now experiencing the powers of hell. The author of life was now to suffer an undeserved, ignoble death. In this cup was the reality that the judgment would make him forsaken by God. He was silent about all these uh, sufferings, specifically, until... A few hours later, when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? Quoting David in Psalm 22. Campbell Morgan writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is hell. No other human being has ever been God forsaken in this life. Man, by his own act, alienated himself from God, but God never left him. He brooded over him with infinite patience and pity and took him back into his heart at the moment of the fall in virtue that the mystery of Calvary, which lay within the determinative counsel and foreknowledge of God long before it's outworking in the history of the race. Hell is being separated from God. And so when he says, why have you forsaken me? He endured the torture of hell, the punishment of hell for those who would believe. Later, by the way, we find out that verse 53 and 54, that Jesus had, I don't know, 80,000 or so angels at his disposal. And I often think in my sanctified imagination what that view in heaven would, might have looked like Jesus is praying to the Father. The Son is praying to the Father. The angels are watching this. They know who He is. And there's no answer. For the first time in the history of the Trinity, there is a broken fellowship. For the first time in Jesus' existence, He prays to the Father and there's no answer. So He prays again, there's no answer. And He prays a third time and there's no answer. I think those angels could have been with their toes curled over the portal of heaven and their hands on their, the handles of their swords ready to go and defend the Son. And they look at the Father and there's no rescue. Calvin says, we ought to remember that the cause of so great sorrow for the death in itself would not have been so grievously tormented in the mind of the Son of Man, if he had not felt that he had to deal with the judgment of God, end quote. Verse 40. Came to the disciples and found them sleeping. It says to Peter, not to the disciples, James and John, to Peter. So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Well, this always convicts me about my prayer life. Because Jesus looks at them and says, you guys couldn't even pray for an hour. Like that's a short amount of time. I mean, I was just gone an hour and you couldn't pray that whole time? Before we get too hard on the disciples, remember they too have had a tough week, probably sleepless nights. They don't have the omniscient foreknowledge that their Lord does. They fell asleep praying. Have you ever fallen asleep praying? I have. Now, let's be, care- let's be clear. That, that's a good way to fall asleep. There, there, there's no better way to fall asleep than praying. But have you ever tried to be earnest in prayer and fallen asleep? I have. Verse 41 keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing. Wow. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't you have better intentions than actions? I do. What a gracious thing for Jesus to say here. I know you want to pray, I know you want to be faithful but the flesh is weak. You're tired. Your eyes are heavy. Jesus is understanding of his friends in this horrific moment. Still a pastor. Verse 42, he went again, away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass for me unless I drink it, your will be done. Did you hear that? If I have to drink the cup of divine judgment, your will be done. Luke, the physician, records that at this moment, the second, prayer, second of three prayers, his body began to writhe in torment and his sweat glands were insufficient in their attempt to relieve his suffering with perspiration. Subcutaneous capillaries dilated and burst. Blood begins to escape his pores along with the sweat. He comes out a third time and you can see that his robe has blood spots from sweat and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 43. Great sorrow produces results in different persons. In Jesus' case, it aroused him to awful agony and earnestness in prayer. By the way, Luke tells us that the disciples were sleeping for sorrow. I understand that. Have you ever sought escape from a heavy heart by just a nap or an overnight? Can I just sleep this off? Verse 44, he left them again and went ahead and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. This was divine judgment to drink the cup that you and I deserve, that you and I filled up with our sin. What did his sufferings mean to him? Human abandonment, divine judgment, and then lastly, fatal resolve. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, it's after the third time, are you still sleeping? Now there's no commentary. But he says, the hour, behold, the hour is at hand. Now back to our geography lesson. If you can kind of picture this, the temple mount is on Mount Moriah with valleys that surround it. On the um, uh, eastern side is the slope that goes down to the Kidron Valley. It's probably during Jesus' time lined with, with uh, grapevines, which is why it makes sense on his way down. He tells them the parable of the vines. He's probably right there among them. And it snaked down, the trail did, to the bottom where there's a creek, the Kidron Brook, the Kidron Creek, the Kidron Valley is that and then it begins sloping up on the mount of olives at the bottom of the mount of olives is this wine press called gethsemane that's where the garden was here's what's interesting to me behold the hour is at hand the son of man is being is being right now being betrayed into the hands of sinners, get up, let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. How does he know the hour is at hand? How does he know he's being, How does he know he's being betrayed right then? Because it's only about 200 yards. We sat in that garden and looked up at the Temple Mount. We sat on the temple Mount, looked down at the garden. It's very close. It would be like you guys looking up at the, the fire station out there. Jesus would have seen the mob with torches coming down the hill, Judas at the head. John says, he rises up and he walks to them. Remember what he says? Who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I think that was to exonerate the disciples. They said who they're seeking. Then Jesus says, just gives me chills to think about it. He says, not I am he. He says, I am. And they fall to the ground because he just said that he was God. God. The great I am. He's been taken up to two sets of trials, three each. The Jewish trial, he's taken to Annas' house, who was the high priest for 16 years. He's just handed the reins over to Caiaphas, his son in law. We went to Caiaphas's palace with the group. We saw where these, this, this took place. It was a terraced Mediterranean villa with an upstairs and a downstairs. Peter's downstairs, warming and Self by the fire. Jesus is upstairs. He can see. We also know from John that John was up there in the room with him. After Annas says he did nothing wrong, he has him beaten, sends him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas accuses him of claiming to be the Son of God. Pretty good accusation, isn't it? He can find nothing deserving of death, so he has him beaten. Then he calls the Sanhedrin, the third part of that trial, and that he meets before them. They can find nothing to condemn him for, so they have him beaten again. Are you keeping track? They then send him over to Pilate on the other side of the Antonio Fortress, just a few hundred yards away, maybe a six, 800 yards away. They send him over to the Antonio Fortress where he's tried by Pilate. Pilate says, I can't, I can't find anything wrong with him. He has him beaten and sent to Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod the great son, who's then there for the the uh, Passover to keep the peace. Herod says, what do I have to do with this? He can't find anything wrong with him and has him beaten again. They put bags over his head and they punch him. And they say, if you're a prophet, then prophesy. Who's the one slapping you? Who's the one punching you? Third time, third part of this trial, he comes back to Pilate again. And Pilate says, I can find nothing wrong with this man after having been told by his wife there's nothing wrong with this man so he turns him over to the crowd says I'll give you a way to get him off the hook I'll give you Jesus or I'll give you a murderer Barabbas and they call for Barabbas and so then he has him scourged then he asks the crowd what will be done they say crucify him and he lets the Romans Take him not very far to be. Do you understand why he couldn't carry his cross? What did this mean to him? It meant taking the wrath of God and the rightful punishment that you and I deserve, and he took it for us. That's what it meant to him. Oh, it's great to ask people who went to Israel. What was meaningful to you? It's a great question. But this passage answers what it meant to him. Last thing we did when we were in Israel was we went to the garden tomb, had a time of communion, just a little debrief. What I find interesting is that what's important to those who go to Israel and know the Savior, what's important about Israel is not what's there, but what's not The bones of Jesus are not there. They are in His body, in heaven, at the right hand of God. For He is risen. He is risen indeed. I trust that you know Him. I trust that your sins have been forgiven by His vicarious substitution for you. You can receive that granting of forgiveness by believing who He is and what He did and that He is and that He's coming again that he's alive and rose from the dead. And if you want to talk about that, don't leave church today without speaking to someone. I'm going to pray in a minute. And after I do, our prayer room will be open. The goods will be over there, Daniel and Marin. If you'd like to talk to them about anything you heard today or anything you've read in the Bible or the eternal destination of your soul, don't leave, please, I beg you, don't leave without settling that. The long-awaited cup now comes to his lips. He dies an agonist death and rises from the grave to give us hope. Let me pray. Oh, Father, what grace there is in this passage and what grace there is in our Savior. Help us to know what his sufferings meant to him because what they meant to him was to our benefit. I'm grateful for our church. I'm grateful for the fellowship we enjoy with each other to encourage one another to love and to know this Lord Jesus who is alive. So in these moments, in these days ahead, give us fresh memories of a Savior deserving of our all. In Jesus' name, amen.